Good morning, uh, church. Um, Good to be with you today. Uh, When you see the task I have ahead of me in Ezra chapter 10, you'll understand why I felt like walking straight um, with the boys and girls and all their joy. It's wonderful to be with you. It's a sad occasion um, as I reflect with you on the passing of a very big part of our church family and Eddie Morrow. But God uh, knows uh, what is best and he has chosen um, to take him uh, to himself. And uh, so we are thankful. Ezra chapter 10. Let's turn there uh, in our Bibles. Ezra chapter 10. And reading uh, from verse uh, number one, this is what God says. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, uh, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, uh, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of um, Asahel, and Jehazai, uh, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshalim and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. 
Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Maseah, Eleazar, Jarib, Jedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, of the sons of Zuzadak and his brothers. They placed themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emer, Hanani and Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Masaiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pashur, Elonai, Masai, Ishmael, Nathanel, Juzabad, and Elasah, of the Levites, Juzabad, Shemai, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pethatiah, uh, Judah, and Eleazar, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Midjamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Binanah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zachariah, Jehil, Abi, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Eleonai, Elishib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza, of the sons of Bibai, were Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai and Athali, of the sons of Bani, were Meshalim, Maluch, Adiah, Jashub, Jashub, Sheal, and Jeremoth, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Adna, Kilal, Beniah, Masaiah, Mathaniah, Bezalel, Benue, and Manasseh, of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Eshijah, Malkijah, Shamamiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malach, and Shermiah, of the sons of Hashem, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimai, of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amran, Uel, Benanai, Bediah, Keluhi, Vaniah, Meramoth, Elishab, Mataniah, Matanai, Jaisu, of the sons of Binu, Shemai, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadabiah, Shashai, Sherai, Azarel, Shalamiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebu, Jeel, um, Matahiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jadai, Jewel, and Benaniah, all these had married foreign women and bore some of the women, and some of the women had even borne children. I think you, you can uh, see the, the issue this morning. I think uh, I've worked hard enough this weekend. Now, <laughs> can I sit down? Um, God has been faithful. This is his word. I, I think it's important, doesn't it? I know it's important that we read all of it because that's what he's given to us. So I make no apology for my pronunciation difficulties, which were necessary as we read the whole of God's word. That was a tough read. But there are times in life, I think you will agree, that you have to give tough love when you have to say no to someone uh, that you love for, 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 their, for their greater good, when you have to cross the, the pain line short term for greater good long term. 
making uh, your husband uh, learn to cook uh, one day, one or two things uh, for himself or, or to iron because he'll need that someday. My mom was in hospital the other week. Some of you know about this uh, for a few nights and, uh, and I wasn't in the house. Obviously, I don't live here anymore. But I say the chickens fairly came home to roost for my father. Making, uh, your, uh, making your husband learn to cook a thing or two uh, does have future benefits. Making your aging parent uh, get up and going rather than lie in bed or on the sofa all day where, where they only get worse. I, I was in a home on Wednesday and that was just what the daughter was saying to, to her mother. Tough love. Making your teenager study upstairs when there's sport on the TV but their GCSEs are coming. Refusing to bail out your grown-up children when, they want, when you want to teach them a lesson that their future selves will thank you for. Tough love. Or something much more serious, like letting your wife face the consequences of her sin problem because you really need her to stop. Tough love. It's hard in the short term, but better in the long term. Lo- love is, is never just warm, cuddly affirmation, is it? Or always saying yes. Sometimes it has to be no. Sometimes it has to have consequences for the benefit of the future. And today, Ezra has a tough love message for his people as we reach the end of chapter 10. First of all, we're going to talk about uh, assemble to repent. Ezra has been uh, numbering himself with the people. Ezra has been identifying with the people who've been caught up in this very public sin. Uh, we talked about this last week. And you'll recall uh, the offense that, 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 it, that it happened was that they'd taken wives for themselves from the peoples of the land. They weren't supposed to do that. They were arriving and they were not supposed to intermarry with the nations around them. This has led Ezra to literally tearing his hair out and to tearing his clothes and his beard and to fasting and to mourning that loss of relationship that sin always brings in solidarity with his people for they are, for they are one people of God. And now here in chapter 10 begins, he continues in a a similar vein. Uh, And and, and in fact, he's then joined by many others. He's joined by many others at a specific location in the temple, the newly rebuilt uh, house of God. We're told in verse 1 that that there's a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered with him. Indeed, to him is the way it's put, gathered to him. And the mood is, is a somber one. They're crying a lot. They are weeping bitterly. And one man stands up to speak, and his name is Shechaniah. And he says these words. We have broken faith. Verse 2, second half of it. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. That's, that's, that's confession language, isn't it? We have, we have broken faith. That's, that's the language of fidelity, fitting when it's about marriage. We have done this thing that we shouldn't have done. We have broken this relationship our side. We've broken it. We've not, we're not pointing the finger. No, no, we, we've sinned, Ezra, or Sekaniah says. He, he says, but, we, but even now, he carries on, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Shechaniah says, we understand the sort of God that you are. You are not a one strike and you're out God. Hit them hard and early like some earthly dictators. No, no. All day long you reach out your arm to your people. You're a God who loves and longs for them to return. 
Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, you, you're always there reaching out. There's always hope despite sin. The gospel is about hope for sinners, isn't it? It's about hope for sinners who, who confess. Therefore, he continues, let us make a covenant with our God uh, to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at my, the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. According to the law. This is um, seeking restoration language, isn't it? This is seeking that relationship with God restored and fixed up, a covenant renewal, no less. And this is, this is repentance, isn't it? Seeking to turn from that, that practice and to turn completely 180 God's way. It's the language, isn't it? To God's instructions for life according to his law, as it's put here. But that comes at a cost. A bit more about that soon. These are words of confession. These are words of relationship restoration. These are words of, of indeed repentance. And, and that, is what we, that is what we do, need to do, when we sin as God's people. Or indeed, as those who are not yet God's people. We must confess. We, we must own up. We must say it was me. We must seek restoration and relationship. Lost since, since, since Adam, if, that's, if you're not a Christian. Or lost since the last time you, you wandered off, if you are. We must repent, turn away 180 degrees from, from that way and towards God's word and his way and his law, no, no matter the cost. Shechaniah's big finish is there. He, he encourages Ezra to take the necessary steps to lead the people out of this mess. He says, arise, verse 4, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Praise God for the encouragers who back the leaders. When the leaders have brave, decisive calls to make, the encouragers are wonderful. They're, they're priceless. Ezra, with his word of encouragement in his back pocket, then goes to some of the leaders of the people, the leading priests, we're told, and the Levites. And he insists in verse 5 that they take this oath to obey the instruction to put away their foreign wives. And they, they do indeed take this oath. Ezra then leaves the temple, the house of God, and he, and he withdraws to the house of someone called uh, Jehohanan uh, and spends the night there fasting and mourning and the faithlessness of God's people, the faithlessness of the exiles. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? The faithlessness of the exiles, because of course they're, they're, not, they're not exiles any longer, remember? That's interesting because you know that these are these are the remnant. These are the people who've come from exile and are now living in the land. I mean, how how can you still be calling them exiles? Because of geographically, of course, they're they're no longer in Babylon. They were home, but they were not behaving like it. Isn't that right? They were not acting like the remnant they were supposed to be. They were acting like the exiles. They were acting the way they were not supposed to. Confessionally, they were Jews, but functionally, they were just not behaving like that. And that's always a possibility, isn't it? It's much easier to have God's way in your head than it is in your action. Matthew spoke like this the other Sunday night, isn't it? It's much easier to have it that way right. We always need to beware. We need to mind the gap, don't we? Between what we say we believe and how it shows up in our lives lived. And we assemble, don't we, in church uh, to remind each other of the gospel 
Uh, that's what we're doing here today. We're reminding each other of the gospel. Uh, and we're encouraging each other and confessing our sins. And, and Brian led us in that, didn't he? In, in seeking that relationship with God, in repenting from our sins, in, in reminding each other that, that, that Jesus, indeed, he's not hard-nosed with us. He's gentle and loves and wants us back. That's what he's like. And we help each other in that. We help each other in encouraging each other to, to live out lives that, that, that fit with what we, what we confessed together when we first believed. What, what we confessed when we first believed. What we confessed when, when we were baptized. What we confessed when we became church members. And we help each other with that. We, we gather, we assemble to repent and a lot of other things in reminding ourselves of the gospel. Secondly, separate to survive this morning. In verse 7, we have the big announcement. The big announcement of the leader on, on the television at 7 that everybody watches. And it's not stay at home, it's come to Jerusalem. Did you see it? Come to Jerusalem. Big proclamation. Everyone has to come to Jerusalem. And three days are given for them to get there. Clearly, a desire for a quick resolution to this problem exists. And there's a threat, isn't there, of consequences, sanctions, no less, uh, your, your property is going to be seized, verse 9, verse 8, and you're, you're going to be banished from the community of believers if you don't come in three days. And the men of Judah and Benjamin assemble in Jerusalem. It's now the 20th day of the ninth month, uh, and that's the rainy season. It's December in our calendar, uh, and, and in the open square, they're all gathered, and, and, the, and there's lots of trembling. Two reasons for the trembling were given, uh, that the matter is heavy and the rain is heavy. We're told that. Rainy season's proper rain, of course. It's not a sort of mizzle or a shower. It's proper, heavy, running down the street rain. And these people are being drenched in the open square as they tremble before God. And Ezra gets up to address the crowd and he says, you have broken faith. So he says. Notice that verse 10, he's called Ezra the priest. You see it there? Now, he hasn't been called Ezra the priest for about three chapters. It's only once recorded in another place, chapter 7. And, and, and remember, remember back last week in chapter 9, he, he was praying we and, and us and, and, and are, showing his, his identification, his solidarity and sharing in the guilt of the people like, like a priest should. But notice the change of tack now. It's not we and our and, it and us. It's, it's you. It's, it's you. He, he confronts the people. But remember, he's, he's still the priest, the text tells us, just in case you forget. He, he's still solid, in solidarity, and he's representing them, and he's identifying with them. But he, he's confronting the people now. Slightly, slight change of tact here, isn't it? You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Again, this is presented as primarily a matter of faith. It's been broken. You have broken faith. That's the first thing he says. It's been, it's been fractured. It's resulted in marriages with foreign women from the pagan nations around. In verse 11, he, he urges them to make confession. He urges them to confess their sins to God, to the Lord God, to the God of the covenant. He urges them to repent. He urges them to do God's will. Not just to believe, but, but to do. That's the language. To do his will. It's actions that matter. Not just to confessionally, in your mind, hold to certain truths, but to functionally act like that. That really matters. Even though it costs, no matter the cost. 
sometimes you have to do the right thing no matter what it costs. In fact, isn't that always the case? And he implores them to separate themselves from the peoples of the land and from foreign wives. More than a hint here, actually, that the foreign wives climb down, the weakening of that being no big deal anymore, has actually resulted in other things creeping in, other practices. Intermarriage is one thing, but it's sort of symptomatic of a wider kind of assimilation and a kind of wider climb down in God's ways, a wider assimilation, you could call it, into the peoples of the land. More than a hint of that here, the way this is put. And the people answered, it is so. We're guilty. In other words, we're guilty. Confession. And they, and they lay out their intentions, their, their plan to act, not just confession, but action. We must do as you have said, they, they say. God has moved among them. He uses his servant to stir them. And, and there's no excuses now. But as we, as we continue to read verse 13, there, there seems to be a problem. Uh, the, the problem, in fact, is worse than Ezra expected. Verse 13 shows us that the people, well, well they're proposing a delay. A delay as a result of several problems. They, they tell Ezra that the, the people are... are, are the number of the people is great, the, the weller isn't great, uh, there's a lack of strength, and there is a potential length to the task that maybe he doesn't realize. It's a big job, and maybe it's going to take longer. And the solution's offered. Let, us offer, let our officials stand for the whole of the assembly. Um, nothing wrong with a, a bit of congregational input, uh, says the Baptist. Uh, let our leaders represent all of us, in other words. There are going to be officials in every city joined by elders and judges and they'll, they'll presumably consider the evidence in every city and meet out justice in each of those cases presented to them. And everyone's going to still have to come when they're called uh, and, and, and this is going to have to be dealt with locally because the problem's so big it can't be done in three days in Jerusalem. It's going to have to be dealt with out there. And it seems like a plan that's going to work but not everyone agrees. Um, of course, for every encourager, like Sheik and I, you get a spanner in the works type. Uh, that's the way it is. Um, that's the truth. Uh, two men oppose this. Uh, Jonathan and uh, Jay Zia uh, oppose this. And uh, the two others, uh, Meshulam and Shabbatiah, uh, support them in their opposition. Now, what do they, what do they disagree about? Is it, is, it, is it the idea of separation Full stop. Do, do they disagree about that? that that's possible. These four men, it, it seems unlikely. Um, that, that would result in them being cut off from Israel. They would have their property seized. Probably, probably they wanted the matter dealt with quicker. They weren't happy with the delay, in other words. They wanted the three-day option. And so they oppose the delay. But Ezra knows that he has to bring the people along with him. So they go with the second option that almost everyone agrees with. And this seems wise um, because the process ends up taking no short, uh, nothing, not less than three months uh, to carry out. Verse 17 tells us, uh, And the first day of the, of the first month they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. It's three months until they have the problem dealt with. And a list of those involved uh, is there in the final uh, verses of the chapter from verse 18. Uh, it's probably an abbreviated list uh, for which I, for one, am, am thankful. Uh, and the, and the, I don't think this is everybody. It, could, it probably couldn't be. Uh, and, and the wickedness 
um, uh, sorry, the widespread sin um, has, has required that sacrifice there in verse 19, that guilt offering, uh, a, a ram of the flock, we're told, a reminder, a reminder of the need for the, for the Lamb of God to come. And this, is, this is serious, isn't it? This is a serious matter. Ezra paints this as a, as a big crisis because it is, uh, because there's very real dangers with this situation. Verse 10, he, he says that the, the situation has increased the guilt of Israel. That's strong language. If I don't put it to you strong enough, I, I can tell you it is. It's strong language. Uh, he says in verse 14 that, 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 that they're gathering all the people and dealing with the matter uh, until, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us, which clearly indicates that the fierce wrath of God is currently turned towards them. Isn't that right? Maybe that surprises you a little. That his righteous anger has, has come in judgment uh, over his people. But 1 Peter 4 verse 17 says this, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter there is, is reminding them that the wicked will face God's judgment, but, but that believers in Christ must hold themselves to a higher standard than they once did. Judgment for the house of God is not punitive. It's, it's about cleansing. It's, 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 that, it's that idea. And so it follows that if God's own people need to be purified, then what must happen to those who do not profess, to, who do not believe? very serious situation. There are very real dangers in these marriages with Amorites and Hittites and Egyptians and, and Moabites. In chapter 9, it was the threat that God would consume them that we read about. Ezra's prayer said that back then, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? God could destroy them. He told them repeatedly not to do this, but they disobeyed. God could destroy them. Better not to fear the one who can kill the body, no matter how many nuclear missiles he has, but cannot kill the soul. No, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, says Scripture. Who's that? It's not the devil, it's God. So they could be eradicated by God fast, but they could also, as we talked about last week, be eradicated slowly by the slow creep of influence and change and climb downs and a little bit here and a little bit there and suddenly we've lost the whole thing. You see, that's the other reason that they're not to marry from the surrounding nations. Because they would drag them down. They would drag them along to the Molech festival, to the Asherah pole, to the site of child sacrifice, no less. That's what they would do. So they must separate to survive. They must separate to survive either from the wrath of God or from the slow creep of disappearing little by little. Finally, our point this morning is to remember to read on. 
See, there, there are some, many among you who are astute. I don't doubt the uh, theological understanding of our congregation. There are many astute among you who have twigged one or two issues with this declaration uh, from Ezra here in this um, get rid action that has been uh, outlined. I mean, it's all very well uh, realizing that you have married foreign women and deciding to divorce them, but what about the repercussions, you ask? Can I firstly say uh, about that matter that some Bible teachers um, do not believe these to be proper marriages. You see, the word for married, uh, verse number 2 and verse number 10, is not actually the normal word for married that's used in the Old Testament. It's a word meaning to sit or to dwell. Uh, All the people sat in the open square, verse 9, that is the same word. And the word for wives in verse 3 and verse 11 and verse 14 is actually a word that is equally translatable as women. In fact, it's translated like that in verse number 10, as women. It's the same word. They may, according to some people's understanding of Scripture, they may have just been live-in partners. Now, there's no Bible word for my partner, the way people speak today. It just isn't a word for that. Uh, And also, can I say that the word for divorce is not also the normal word for divorce. Uh, It's a word meaning bring out, which is used in other places uh, as to bring out, which again, that that could be the situation. They're not proper marriages. But, but even if that is the case, I've hardly whitewashed the issue, have I? Because that doesn't help very much when you consider the last verse of the chapter. Indeed, the book. Because it says that some of the women had even born children. What about the collateral damage? Awful phrase. What about the women and the children, in other words? What about the women and the children? For, of course, In those days that we're reading about, there's no housing executive, there's no social security, there's no maintenance payment system. There's no possibility of a woman making it on her own with her little ones. You cut her off, she doesn't survive, and neither does the children that she bears. The fact that the phrase, according to the law, is used at the end of verse 3, well, that gives us something of a clue here to what I would expect to be the case. Because part of the ending of these relationships is the provision for, is the adequate provision for these women and their children, either back in their own communities or somewhere else. Because that is the way the law speaks of how you look after women and children in these situations. In fact, maybe that's why this took so long because they were working through all of these issues. And of course, the widow and the orphan do remember way heavily on the heart of God. I speak from that situation. I speak from what the law says about what you're to do with women uh, and widows and orphans in such situations. Think about James 1 verse 27. Think about the book of Ruth. Think about the book of Amos. So I don't think they were just cut off and sent out into the woods at all. I don't believe that. Now, I do realize that these wives of Ezra's day could have, of course, have committed to the Lord God of Israel. 
Remember, they could have, they could have nailed their colors to the mast. Uh, Gentiles are allowed in Ezra chapter 6. So long as they, so long as they commit to worship the, the one true God and to live for him, they, were, they would have been allowed to stay if that was their situation. So how do we, how do we apply this today? Do you ask those married to unbelieving wives or husbands? Well, do we ask them to ask their unbelieving wife or husband to move out? Is that, is that what we do? Let's, um, let's back up a little and remind ourselves, remind ourselves that not everything we read in the Bible is prescriptive. It may be just descriptive. What, what does that mean? That means that just because something happened in the Bible doesn't mean you're supposed to do the same. You aren't supposed to bring out a knife on your son. You aren't supposed to try and talk to a donkey or to find five smooth stones and throw them at a giant. You're not supposed to do that just because it's in Scripture. God's word is absolutely clear about the dangers of close association with the world. The principle, the principle is to get rid, Matthew 18, verse 8. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Get rid. Or, or don't go there in the first place. That's the other option. For it's clear that you're not to marry an unbeliever. Do not be unequally yoked. We read this last week, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6. Don't do it. Uh, don't doubt the disaster it can be. Just don't go there. But, but what about if you have already married him before you believed or have already married an unbelieving woman full stop? Do you divorce? Well, we have specific prescriptive instructions for that. They're here and we can follow these to the letter. 1 Corinthians 7. 12 and 13. To the rest, I say, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, uh, which had all sorts of messy circumstances like this to consider. This is what he says. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is not an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. No, you don't divorce now. No. You stay. They're happy to stay with you. You stay with them. Absolutely. The idea being, of course, that an opportunity exists. A mission field exists. Now, this side of Jesus and the new covenant for you. Above all of this discussion, as important as it is this morning, and above whether or not these were proper marriages, the principle in play here must be understood, okay? It is holiness, holiness, holiness. That's what this is about. Do you understand that, okay? What was that sermon about this morning? It was about holiness. That's what it was about, okay? The, the call to pursue and pres- preserve holiness is, is required. In every age, Leviticus eleven forty four and First Peter one fifteen say the same words: "Be holy, for I am holy," says the Lord. And I want you to see this as a matter of holiness, and that also I want you to see it as a matter of necessity, a matter of necessity for mission. Holiness is actually necessary for that pagan wife. Why? 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 Why is it? Well, it's necessary if she is ever going to be brought out of darkness and into light. 
how do you how do you combine that idea of of, of separation with with mission, Richard? That doesn't make any sense. One kicks people out the door, the other says, "Come in." Which one is it? Well, well, our New Testament does. Okay, now let, now hear me out, because our New Testament calls us to be in the world but not of the world. It calls us to be holy, but it calls us to reach out. You see, the preservation of holiness is actually a matter of having an eye for that woman or man in the longer term. You see, Ezra's certain that in accordance with God's law and ways, this action is absolutely necessary because that's how you... Otherwise, there's not going to be a people of God. This is tough love. This requires drastic actions. Otherwise, you just assimilate. Otherwise, you just get swallowed up in the wider world. And there is no distinct new community to bring her or him into anyway. It's gone. There's just the world. You see? We're to love the world. and we're, to, we're, we're not to love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 But we're to go into all the world and, and to reach them. In other words... We exclude so we can include later on. You see? There's no, there's no community to bring your wife into if you just assimilate it and become the same as her. So you're actually doing her a wonderful gospel favor by saying no in this instance. Include them there and then and there is no new creative creation people to bring them into. For they've been slowly, slow creeped out of existence. Little by little. Exclude so we can include. That's the idea. Exclude so we can bring them into the people of God. God's word's clear. We are to maintain that relationship and to use it as a mission field. To share the gospel, to show the light of Christ in your life. Do not divorce in that situation. But the principle of purity requires that you do not assimilate with the world because there's nothing to win the people to if that happens. There's nothing to win that unbelieving husband or wife to if you become so like that that person that... And that's exactly the principle that we're thinking about. You've got to exclude tough love so in the long term you can win them to something. So you can include them by winning them for Christ, by God's grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word and its challenges this morning. Recognize the difficulty of this situation, Lord. It's one-off nature in Scripture, and yet it's lesson about holiness, which is on every page. And we pray you'll help us to um, to maintain our our confession and practice closely together, to be holy people who can win others, not just disappear in among them. And we pray for your help in this. In Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.